Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You can turn to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 is perhaps the best-known chapter in all of Ezekiel. There are even songs about it. It's a well-known chapter. Even people who don't know the Bible or know where to find it know that somewhere in the Bible it talks about dry bones coming together again. I remember hearing about the dry bones the first time when I was just a young Lutheran boy in Sunday school. And it was told to us as a demonstration of God's redeeming power and his redeeming ability. And that exactly is what we have to talk about first before we get actually into the text. Because Ezekiel's dry bones is also one of the most mispreached of all the passages in the book of Ezekiel or in the book of the Old Testament or in the books of the Bible, Ezekiel's dry bones are consistently preached wrong. Let me define what I mean by preached wrong. You have to pay attention to what the Bible actually says about itself. When the Bible takes the time to give you an explanation of itself, you need to pay attention to that. For instance, the Old Testament has a lot to say about Sabbath and Sabbath keeping. And Judah and Israel were driven from their land because of their lack of keeping God's Sabbaths. So Sabbath keeping is a very big issue in the Old Testament. You get into the New Testament and you read the book of Hebrews and a Hebrew writing to Hebrews talks about the Sabbath and equates it with resting from all your work and trusting in Christ. And so you find the satisfaction of the Sabbath requirement, the shadow of the Sabbath finds its fulfillment in Christ, that Christ himself is that satisfaction and fulfillment. He is the figure that casts the shadow. Okay, if you just spend your time talking about Old Testament Sabbathing without ever talking about New Testament fulfillment, then you're still not preaching the whole story of Sabbathing. Does this make sense? Absolutely. Okay, well, the same thing here in Ezekiel. Not only are we going to see the episode that we're all very familiar with, the dry bones, but we're also going to see God interpret for us what it is he's doing with the dry bones. Why did he do this? And his interpretation is going to be completely consistent with everything else we've seen in the book of Ezekiel. Because what we see consistently in Ezekiel is God punishing Israel, punishing Judah, and at the same time promising them restoration, brought back to their land, a kingdom to come. All of that is involved in all of Ezekiel from beginning to end. And so the same thing happens in Ezekiel 37. God is 
in the midst of telling Israel how he's going to restore them, how he's going to bring them back. That is the context of chapter 36, which we're going to go back and read a little bit of, because you have to remember again, there are no chapter divisions in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel just kept writing right from these promises of restoration that God had given him right into the next vision that he has, which is the vision of the dry bones. And then God interprets the dry bones as this is the whole house of Israel and I'm going to restore them. That's the whole point of the dry bones. Now, I don't think I've heard any passage of the Bible preached on more frequently in an allegorical fashion than Ezekiel 37. And I could ask every one of you, just go ahead and do it. Just go ahead and preach Ezekiel 37 in an allegorical fashion. And you're all going to come up with the same allegory because we've heard it so many times that we just start thinking, well, that must be what it's about. Okay, there's dry bones and then bone to its bone and then sinew and then flesh and then breath comes into them. And that's what it's like to preach the word of God. It's like preaching to dry bones. And when you preach the gospel to dry bones, then breath is going to come into them. And that's spiritual rebirth. And that's what the whole story of the dry bones is about. Except that, again, God tells us what his interpretation of it is, which means whatever else you say about it, Whatever else you can conceive of or allegorize about it, if you don't include God's interpretation of it, then whatever you've said about it isn't right. Whatever else you've said about it is your imagination, your allegory, your idea of what it must mean. But if you don't include what God says it means, then you have completely ignored the obvious meaning, the obvious interpretation of it in favor of your own interpretation. And I just can't begin to count how many times I have heard preachers preach this passage and they stop preaching before it gets to the point where God says, let me interpret this. Verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. How often have you ever heard that part? No, they never go there because they preach the first 10 verses and then they allegorize it to mean you or they allegorize it to mean the church or how to preach the gospel or what it's like to preach the gospel to dead bones or anything like that. Especially if you start with the a priori position of covenantal amillennialism, there is no future for Israel. Israel in the Old Testament is the church in the New Testament. There's no hope for national Israel anymore. If you start with that position, then you have a big problem with Ezekiel 37 when it gets to verse 11. So what do you do? You just don't preach that. You just ignore that. And you just assume that your congregation is going to not read ahead. They're just going to listen to you. They're going to agree with your interpretation, and they're just going to move on. But that's why it's so very important to understand everything that we have seen in the book of Ezekiel so far, because that pattern of punishment and promise of restoration runs all the way through the book. So Ezekiel 37 is not unique to the rest of the book. It's perfectly in keeping with the rest of the book. 
And so it's really important to read the whole thing because after the vision is explained as the whole house of Israel, after that there's the reunion of Judah and Israel, the northern and the southern tribes. And by the time you get to verse 24, there's the promise of the Davidic kingdom because God remembers that he made a covenant with David, an unconditional covenant that his house is going to always sit on the throne ruling over Israel. So therefore, if you reestablish Israel, you have to have the house of David sitting on the throne ruling over them. It's all part and parcel of what God has promised. God knows he promised that. And so as he promises the restoration of Israel, he also promises Christ on the throne, which is why, again, it's so important at the very beginning of the New Testament, as soon as Matthew gets into his genealogy, he traces Jesus back to David, because it's important to know that it's the lineage, the family line of David that leads to Christ, who sits on the throne, fulfilling the Davidic covenant. All of that is wrapped up in chapter 37. How much of it gets preached? Not much. <laughs> First 10 verses. Uh, but anyhow, Ezekiel just couldn't prophesy. He had to take the word of the Lord says. Absolutely. The word of the Lord says. So as an essential premise, then I'm going to argue, see if you agree with me, that if that is, in fact, the word of the Lord, and then if we are preaching the Bible as the word of the Lord, would you all be more interested in hearing the words that the Lord said, or would you be more interested in hearing the imaginary words that I can make up? Because I, I, yeah, you're going to go with the Lord, huh? I can allegorize with the rest of them. I can convince you to paint your house blue because the Bible says so. If I'm allowed to just allegorize wildly, I don't know why I would go for that particular rule. But I, I could do that. I could allegorize. But because the Lord said this is the explanation of the vision, I think we really need to pay attention to what the Lord said and recognize that it's his word. It's as good as anything else you've ever read in the Bible, any promise in the Bible, any declaration from God. God declares, this is what I'm going to do. And we have to agree that this is what God is going to do. If we don't agree, then admit that you really don't agree with the Bible. You're not preaching the Bible. You're not saying what the Bible says because you just don't like it or because your system can't embrace it. In which case, throw away the system. Get rid of the system. It's wrong if it denies what the word of the Lord says. Yep. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. So we're going to start in chapter 36, verse 22, and I'm just going to read just to build up speed. Chapter 36, verse 22 of Ezekiel says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I am the sovereign God, declares the Lord God. When I prove myself holy among you in their sight. 
For I will take you from the nations, and I will gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it and I will not bring a famine on you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field that you may not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourself in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. And the desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passed by. And they will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it and will do it. Thus says the Lord God, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So will the waste cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Now, how is he going to fill Jerusalem and all the waste places with a sudden flock of people? Chapter 37, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and he set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them round about. And behold, there were very many in the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Good answer. Yes. And again he said to me, prophesy over these bones. The word prophesy here doesn't mean tell them some new information, prophesy what's coming in the future. Instead, what it means is preach, speak the word of God over these bones. Prophesy over the bones and say to them, O bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life and I will put sinews on you 
and make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and I will put breath, that is the word ruach, some of the translations will say wind, some say breath, it's the same Hebrew word for both breath and wind, I will put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. That's a little scary. I admire Ezekiel for still standing there. I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, to the wind, to the ruach, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath or say to the wind, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life, and they stood on their feet an exceeding great army. So we're talking about a lot of people. So if God were to do that at some future point, could he in fact fill the waste places of Jerusalem and the cities of Jerusalem with men like flocks? Mm -hmm. If he has this ability to pull people right up out of the ground, if he has the ability to make dry bones live again, can he make plentiful people for Israel? Sure he can. Now, those first 10 verses are a perfect demonstration of resurrection. They're a perfect demonstration of the renewal that God puts into people where he says he's going to put his spirit in them and they're going to know that he is the Lord. All of that is true. It's just that that's not the end of the story. And that's all anybody ever seems to preach to. You get to verse 10 and then you apply it. And you either talk about resurrection or God's resurrection power or what it's like to preach the gospel to dry bones. And then when they hear it, they become quickened and the spirit comes into them and they live again. And then you close your Bible and you go home. But starting at verse 11, God is going to explain to Ezekiel that what he just witnessed is an object lesson because God is demonstrating to Ezekiel that he has the power to raise up from the dirt a whole army of people demonstrating that he can, at any point, make the waste places and the ruined cities full of people because he can do this. By the way, when uh, Jesus was told by the Pharisees that he should tell the people who were worshiping and causing a fuss around him that, that they should be quiet, Jesus says to them that if they were quiet, that the rocks would cry out. Okay, that's interesting because Jesus was also talking to the Pharisees who said, we're sons of Abraham, and they wore that badge proudly. We're sons of Abraham, and Jesus says, God can pull up out of these rocks, sons of Abraham. Okay, what's he referring to? This very ability that God has to draw people up out of the dirt, up out of the dust, 
take bones, put people back together, and resurrect people. This is the power God has because of his absolute sovereignty. So why is he exercising that power at this particular junction? We would all agree that he has the power of life and death. He created the first man out of the dust of the earth, so of course he can create as many people as he wants out of the dust of the earth. But why did he do it this time? Well, now he's going to tell you. And he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is perished. We are completely cut off. Not only dead, but cut off from their land, cut off from their southern neighbors, Judah, The northern tribes and the southern tribes are separated from each other. And they believe at this point while they're living among the Gentiles, as they've lost their own heritage and their own land, they have the sense that they are completely cut off. And God says, that's the state that they are in right now. And so I brought you here to see these bones because these bones represent the whole house of Israel who say our bones are dry and we are cut off. Now, let me make one more quick connection. When you go to Romans 11 and you read Paul talking about the natural branches and the wild branches that are grafted into the root, one of the things that he very specifically says about the natural branches is that they are cut off because that's the language that Israel has always expressed, Israel has always felt, that since we're out of our land, since we're out of participation in the worship of God at Jerusalem. Since we're away from all that, we're actually literally genuinely cut off. And so Paul picks up that language and says they are cut off, which is why Paul also concludes in Romans 11 that after God is finished doing what he's doing with the Gentiles, that he's going to graft them back in which we're about to see here in Ezekiel 2, that he's going to gather them, he's going to regraft them, and his conclusion is, and so all Israel will be saved. Where does he get that? Where does he get that thinking? Well, he gets it from right here. Paul is informed by remembering that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, remembering that he was studied in the law, remembering that he was a teacher in Israel. He knows all this stuff in Ezekiel. He understands the promises of the restoration of Israel. He understands that even though they are cut off, they are going to be restored again, and that promise exists. And it's even brought into greater relief for Paul by the fact that Ezekiel 37, which he wouldn't have referred to it as Ezekiel 37, but Ezekiel 37 has this grand promise of the future Davidic covenant. And now Christ has come who has a lineage back to David, and he's clearly the Messiah of Israel. He's the one that's going to restore the kingdom, which is why his disciples said to him, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? They understand these promises. They know these promises. So all I'm arguing is if you 
read Ezekiel 37 in its natural context, not only is it promising once again the restoration of physical national Israel, and you don't have to allegorize it, you don't have to spiritualize it, it's saying what it means to say, and God tells you what it means to say, but on top of that, it informs the New Testament writers who equally say that Israel is, at this moment, cut off, but going to be grafted back in, and the conclusion is, so all Israel will be saved. That's perfectly in keeping with everything we know from all the prophets in the Old Testament leading up to Paul in the New Testament. Nothing about national Israel standing or promises has changed when you get into the New Testament. It's not necessary to say that they are now somehow the church or to say that the church is the true Israel or the spiritual Israel. or None of that is necessary if you just let the Bible say what it says. And it's the lack of letting the Bible say what it says that has led to all this confusion theologically. I read just today on Facebook a meme that popped up that said, um, I was talking about the church in the wilderness, and then concluding that Israel is the church and church is Israel based on that. Have you ever read that passage, the church in the wilderness? It's all talking about Moses, and Moses was the one who led the assembly in the wilderness. And when that word assembly was translated into the Greek for the Greek New Testament, they used the word ekklesia, which means assembly. And then it was translated in the King James into church, because ekklesia is usually translated as church in the King James. And so you come up with the concept of the church in the wilderness. It's actually the assembly in the wilderness, the assembly that was led by Moses. So it's very clear who they're talking about. They're talking about national Israel. And there's nothing in that that combines the church with Israel or Israel with the church. But if you take little things like that, it was just brought into such stark relief to me again when I read that today. I thought this is how errors happen. You take one phrase out of its context and then you build this whole theology around that phrase rather than recognizing that that phrase has a whole context and understanding it in that context and then keeping that context with the whole rest of the Bible. But if you just let the Bible say what it says, you won't have that kind of confusion. Okay, end of that rant. I'm probably not done ranting, but that's the end of that particular rant. So verse 11, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Is any of that vague? Is any of that difficult to understand? It's very, very plain language. God took Ezekiel to the valley of dry bones. He resurrected the dry bones out of the dust of the earth, even though they were very dry and very dead. And he did that so that he could say to Ezekiel, now prophesy to them and say, since they are the whole house of Israel, they represent the whole house of Israel. Say to them, I'm going to bring you up out of your graves. You are my people and I am going to take you to the land of Israel. There's no need to spiritualize or allegorize or 
twist that in any way. Then, when I do that, then, verse 13, then you will know that I am the Lord. See, God plays the long game. God plays the big overview of human history. We think that all of history sort of began at the day of our birth, and it's over when we get old enough that we can't remember what happened. And at that point, that's our our history. But God's view of history is from Adam and Eve to the New Jerusalem and everything in between. That is all what God is doing on planet Earth. And he is going to demonstrate to national Israel that he is, in fact, their God. He has right now got them in a scattered condition. He is doing that on purpose in order to make the Gentiles jealous. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 11. Once he is satisfied with what he is doing with the Gentiles, once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then he's going to turn his attention back to Israel, and so Israel is going to be saved. Here it is in Ezekiel. I brought you here to demonstrate that I am going to bring my people up out of their graves. I'm going to take them to the land of Israel. When I do that, they're going to know that I'm God. That's God's intention. That's his plan, is that after he puts a new heart in Israel, after he gives them his spirit, after they repent over their sinfulness, then he's going to establish the kingdom in Israel, and they are finally going to worship him aright, worship him as God, and they are going to keep all of the ordinances and the laws and the things that he has forever been telling them, you as my people ought to be like this. I think that's why the end of Ezekiel is all about the temple that's going to be built. I believe it's a physical, literal temple that's actually going to be built because once he reestablishes Israel and brings them back to the land of Israel, they are finally going to worship him aright. They're going to need a temple to do that in. This all makes sense. They're going to be like they're home with their temple. Yeah, they're going to be at home in their temple. They're finally going to do what they never could do, which is worship him aright. And all of that, again, fits together perfectly. It's said in the Old Testament, said in the New Testament. It perfectly aligns because it's the word of God. So if we don't mess it up, if we don't insert our allegories and ideas, if we don't insert our systems, then the word of God says, in keeping with itself, exactly what God's going to do. But we love to insert ourselves and be creative and be imaginative. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it declares the Lord. Don't you think that those people, once they have lived and rebelled and died and then been brought up again and resurrected and then brought into their land and then the temples built, don't you think they're going to be pretty convinced that God is on their side by then? Pretty, yeah. And that he's going to do what he says because he's told us this thousands of years in advance. But a thousand years is like a day and a day like a thousand years to God. Like I keep saying, he's playing the long game. He knows what he's doing. And he is controlling human history to bring it 
to this culmination. So then verse 15 starts with God giving more instruction to Ezekiel, and then he's going to tell Ezekiel what it means. So again, we have to make sure we say the same thing God said. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and the sons of Israel, his companions. Okay, so that means Judah, Benjamin, the Levites that serve in the temple. Those are the tribes that make up the southern kingdom collectively known as Judah. So write on one stick for Judah and the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim. And all the house of Israel, his companions. Okay, that's the northern tribe known collectively as Ephraim. And so he's got two sticks. One stick is for Judah. One stick is for Ephraim. Two separate sticks. Then join them for yourself, one to another, into one stick that they may become one in your hand. So he was to take the two separate sticks. Here's Judah over here. Here's Israel over here or Ephraim over here, northern and southern tribes. And now bring them together in your hand so that collectively it's all 12 tribes once again. Verse 18, and when the sons of your people speak to you saying, will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say this to them. He doesn't say You figure it out and you allegorize. Come up with some spiritualized meaning for the two sticks. He says, this is what it means. Say this to them. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. So what is God saying? You're two separate kingdoms right now, northern and southern. You've been separated ever since the time of Solomon, ever since the time of Jeroboam. And then you went off into your apostasies, and I took you into your land and then sold you into slavery, and you've been scattered and cut off ever since. But I'm not going to leave you like that. Judah, who he had to keep together, who he had to keep in the land, who he had to uh, keep united until Christ came because Christ is the line of the tribe of Judah. And way back when Israel prophesied over his 12 sons, he said that the Shiloh Messiah was going to come through the tribe of Judah. So Judah had to remain intact until Jesus came. And then 70 AD, he also scatters them. And they have always been, ever since that time of Solomon and the apostasies and the separation between them, they've always been at enmity with each other. So here is the promise. I'm going to bring them back together. There's going to be one stick in my hand, all 12 tribes. And the sticks on which you write, says verse 20, will be in your hand before their eyes. So when you're telling them this, You're showing them this. You have visual aids. You're showing them God said to write this on these sticks and hold it in my hand. And this is what God says. I'm going to bring together Judah and Israel. They're going to be one stick in my hand. 
verse 21 and say to them thus says the Lord God behold I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone and I will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel okay he's pretty specific about where the land is now on the mountain of Israel remember a couple chapters ago we read God talking about the uh, the blessed mountain to, the blessed mountain of Israel as opposed to Mount Seir and all of the Gentile nations. So he's very specific about what land he's talking about. It's the land that he promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I'm going to bring all of them, both kingdoms, all twelve tribes. I'm going to bring them back to this very land. Behold. I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel, and one king will be the king of all of them. And they will no longer be two nations, and they will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. And they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and I will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. I can't begin to tell you and certainly you've all heard it. It's the argument that's made by the covenantal folks time and time again that Israel, because of their rebellion against God, because of their sinfulness, not keeping Sabbath, chasing after idols, for that reason they've been driven out of their land, and that's the reason that God has given up on them. That's the reason that God has permanently cut them off and turned his attention to the church, the new Israel, the spiritual Israel. It's always because Israel in the Old Testament was just so bad. And yet God identifies exactly who he's talking to, exactly what he's talking about. He knows their sinfulness. He knows their depravity. He's punished them for what they've done and for their idols. So he's going to cut them off from their idols and from their detestable things and away from their transgressions. He's going to deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned. And then he's going to cleanse them. And in all of this context, it's very specific who he's talking to. He's talking to national, physical, genetic Israel. He's not talking to the church. He's not talking to anybody but the people who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who have the unconditional promise that God would do just this. So where does the confusion come from? Where's the confusion? There is no confusion. You just say what the Bible says, and there's zero confusion. So where does the confusion come from? The people don't because people don't believe. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. It comes from lack of belief, lack of faith. And even people within the professing church today continue to not believe it. And so they have to, apparently, to save face for God, they have to make up some, well, you know, those promises to Israel in the Old Testament are being fulfilled today, but they're being fulfilled in the church in some kind of spiritualized way. The new Israel, the spiritual Israel. 
And apparently they think they're protecting God's reputation by saying that. But God makes it very, very clear that he knows exactly what he's saying, exactly who he's saying it to, and exactly what he's going to do. He just hasn't done it yet. But he's going to do it. Some of the people haven't even read those words. It's remarkable, isn't it? He said? I was just thinking, knowing the Mormons use this, the sticks as well. Yeah. They say the stick of Judah is the Bible, and the stick of Joseph... Joseph Smith. It's us. It's the book of, well, I know it's the Book of Mormon. Oh. And so you have the Bible, the King James Bible, and the Book of Mormon, and God's bringing those together. So it was a prophesying of Joseph Smith. Yeah. Amazing. So, I mean, just, just, Way to allegorize. Just, yeah. just disregard every single thing. Let's take that. Yeah. And you know, it, I don't mean to be too controversial, but what the hey. Um, but those are the Mormons. And so we can say, well, you know, those are the Mormons. They started with a guy reading out of a hat. So, okay, it's a little wacky. Okay, we get it. But there's Christians who are doing the same thing. They're they're not saying Book of Mormon and King James Bible, but they're reading the two sticks if they ever read it. They're reading it and then allegorizing it in a way that they come up with church. There's nothing in here about that. So I just want to keep saying... Be careful. Just say what the Bible says. Just let it speak. Yes, sir. If you come to this with an anti-Semitic attitude, you're going to tweak this like crazy to me. There's no question about that. Historically, especially after Jerusalem fell, you go back and you look at the writings of Augustine, there is a very clear anti-Israel, anti-Jewish bias going on in the way the Bible is interpreted. That is much of the reason that Origen came up with, well, he didn't come up with, but why he advanced the notion that the Bible has a deeper meaning. There's a surface meaning. You can read the surface meaning, but that's not the real meaning. You have to allegorize it in order to get that deeper stuff out of it. And once you do that, you can start making the Bible say just anything you want, but it was driven by a very real anti-Israel bias. And that's why if you read the amillennialists, the people who write books or articles in defense of amillennialism will almost invariably say, oh, but we're not anti-Semitic. Well, why did they have to come up with that argument right away? It's like, hey, I didn't say anything. Why are you, why are you bringing that up? It's because the history of amillennialism is absolutely anti-Semitic and anti-Israel. So they have to say, well, well no, we're not. I don't see how you can even preach the valley of the dry bones without just preaching it from verse 11 on and instead talk about resurrection and whatever when verse 11 on is sitting there right in front of you. It seems like there's really only one way to preach it. And that's the way God laid it out and interpreted it for you. Well, certainly, you know, from my perspective, there's only one way to preach it. There's one meaning here, and God told you what it is. It's God's meaning. It's God's meaning. And so that's why I keep arguing, even if you feel compelled to tell some other conclusion, story, application. Make sure, yeah, right. (laughs) But make sure you got the God one in there. Make sure you start with, here's God's meaning. Now, let me apply this a little bit for us because I, I don't know, because I want to, because I'm supposed to, because I get paid, because I'm your preacher, because I, whatever reason they have for doing that. To make, yeah, I like how creative I am, any of that. Yes, sir. I was just going to add to his point about the anti-Semitism 
that goes on. There was a reason Paul had to include not to boast against the natural branches because yeah. he was well aware of that. It was happening right away. The Gentiles started thinking, well, that's it. We're brought into the church. And, you know, obviously God's done with Israel. Now, granted, some of the Israelites are believing, but the rest of them, well, they're just cut off. So that's why Paul had to say, yeah, they're cut off, but God's going to graft them back in. And then he says, what is that but life from the dead? Oh, well, gee, what are we reading about here? So Paul is very informed by Ezekiel as he's creating his allegory of, of God cutting off and plugging Israel back into their natural root. And his conclusion is, again, all Israel will be saved. I'm sorry, Gladys, what? The rest of the chapter just makes it so plain. Well, then let's read the rest of the chapter, shall we? Sure. Okay. Segway. Segway. (laughs) Verse 24. And my servant David will be king over them. He just got done saying, no longer are they going to be divided into two kingdoms. They're going to have one king for both of them. Now he's telling you who it is. And my servant David will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances. And they will keep my statutes and observe them. Why? Why does he make that declarative statement? Because, as I mentioned earlier, he has made an unconditional covenant to David that the house of David would always rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. And then when the kingdom was taken away from Solomon, then the southern kingdom, Judah, was still ruled by the house of David, but the northern kingdom was ruled by Jeroboam and then a succession of worse and worse kings. And so David ruled over the collective 12 tribes, Solomon ruled over the collective 12 tribes, and then nobody else did until... Messiah comes, whose right it is to rule, and he's going to rule over the collective 12 tribes because that's how God has made the promise that it's going to be the lineage of David that is going to rule, the house of David that's going to rule over the collective 12 tribes of Israel. So if all Israel is going to be saved, then all Israel is going to be ruled over by Messiah, by the lineage of David. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant. Okay, what land is that? Israel. Israel. He's real specific about what land it is. He's called it Mount Israel. Now he's called it the land that I promised to Jacob. Now he promised it originally to Abraham, when we were back in the book of Genesis, we took the time to trace the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant, the unconditional covenant that God made with himself and then gave to Abraham. He gave the terms of that covenant to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob. And then Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And so God says Jacob, my servant, is the one who I promised this land to. Well, he's the last of the three that was promised that land. So it's the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, my servant, which is even more interesting because usually it's pretty consistent that whenever God is talking about Israel, Jacob, 
here the language gets a little bit confusing. Whenever he's talking about Jacob and he wants to speak of him in a complimentary way, he and his descendants, he usually calls them prince that has power with God. He usually calls them Israel, the one that wrestled with God. But when he wants to remind them of who they are, he goes back to their old name, Jacob, heel catcher, supplanter. Here he says that name, that bad name, says Jacob, and then he says, my servant. He's still my servant. He's still my servant despite all that. So, and they, verse 25, and they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Notice what he did just there. He made a parallel between Jacob, my servant, who you would say, man, that was not a good servant. That, that was not somebody who obeyed you. That was somebody who got driven out of their land. That's somebody who always rebelled. God still refers to Jacob, my servant, in the same way he refers to David, my servant, and he's referring there to the messianic fulfillment of the Davidic promise. I think we could all agree, yeah, Jesus, yes, your servant. And yet he equates that with Jacob, my servant. That's really fascinating to me because God can declare whatever he wants. He chose them as his servant. He chose them as a servant. He can declare you despite yourself, despite your sin, despite your rebellion. He can say, you're mine, and I forgive you, and I clean you up, and I give you righteousness, and I declare you justified, and I declare you glorified. God can declare whatever he wants. And knowing that you're not going to do it, knowing that you're not going to clean yourself up and that you can't justify yourself, it takes the declaration of God to do it. Verse 26 and I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people and the nations will know that I am the Lord who separates, sanctifies, makes holy Israel. Okay, so all the way through this chapter, he's been talking about national Israel, physical Israel, genetic Israel. Did he change the meaning in verse 28? No. Well, then all the nations are going to know that I am the Lord who makes Israel separate who makes Israel holy. I'm going to make Israel my servants, and all the nations are going to know it. My sanctuary is in their midst. His sanctuary is in their midst, even when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Now, I would argue that that section prophetically is speaking, since it's speaking of the time of the kingdom, that it's speaking of what we would know as the millennium. When we get to the book of Revelation next week, we're going to see that at the end of the thousand-year kingdom, there is a period of time when Satan is loosed, and he makes a beeline for Gog and Magog. And then there is a rebellion against the safety of the walled cities of Jerusalem. 
So chapter 38 starts, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against them, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And that's where we will start next week. I just want you to keep thinking sequentially through here. God is still speaking to Ezekiel and showing him progressive revelation of things to come. And I think if we plug these into what we see in Revelation, they also match up and follow the same sequential order. And we will get into next week who Gog and Magog are and who Rosh is. I'll tell you now, it's not Russia. And we'll get into Meshach and Tubal, which is not Tubalsk and is not Moscow, despite the Left Behind books. But we'll talk about all that next week. All right? Hey, I wanted to, if you don't mind, to kind of wrap it up a little bit. Well, I, please, wrap it up a little well, bit. I'm not wrapping your stuff up, but just a little contrasting. I was, just for the heck of it, flipping over to, of course, we know they're coming in. Speak louder, Jeff. <laughs> Ligonier Ministries, uh, and they have their little synopsis of Ezekiel 37. And I thought, well, they actually kind of handled it. Well, and, and, and that we saw, they're talking about the distinctions, and Israel's been kicked out, they're in exile, and I'd like to read the last part, you don't mind. I, I don't mind at all. Would you like to step up here? No. Where the, <laughs> only so that the folks on tape could hear it. Oh, only to see how at the end, how they switch it. Yes, right. yes, a, right. a very popular technique, the, okay. the bait and switch. Right. Yeah. So they're talking about how Israel's been in exile, and adequately describes all that and there at the end of it he said the Lord promises that he will bring these bodies the nation of Israel back to life by his sovereign act moreover he says the proclamation of his word will accomplish the resurrection God has Ezekiel prophesy over the bones and at that point they are restored to life and given the Holy Spirit the Lord is saying that he will restore his people through the foolishness of preaching as part of this restoration, Israel and Judah will be reunited as one nation in God's hand under David, namely Messiah. I'm like, okay, all right, we're there. So far, so good. Then all of a sudden... Although, although I would, just before you did, I, I would argue since he said the point is that God is showing that he will bring people to life through the foolishness of preaching. Is that really what this is about? No, no. It's that not, hadn't even been, that hadn't been written yet. Right, right. But yeah, okay. But that's what he was telling us. Okay, go ahead. very next verse, Christ Jesus fulfills this teaching of today's passage. Resurrection was central to his ministry. He began his work in Galilee, the former northern kingdom of Israel, gathering in the descendants of that kingdom along with the descendants of Judah and Judea. So see, he's fulfilling that is what he's saying. Finally, he decrees that the proclamation of the apostolic gospel is the means of bringing dead sinners back to life. And then they, then they conclude, under the fuller revelation of the new covenant, we see that the resurrection of Israel finds its fullest realization in the resurrection of the saints in the new heaven and new earth. As Christians, we are the Israel of God, the one community of believers united by faith in Jesus that is made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles alike. Anyway, I thought it was kind of interesting. It was just there it is. There it is. Like, whoa. Yeah, that, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because that's the way it's... It's actually handling well, talking about the distinction between the northern and the... Yeah. And then all of a sudden, well, that's fulfilled by Jesus preaching the north and the south. Yeah. And then, by the time you're done, the church is the new Israel. Right. And I mean, totally disregard everything we just ended there, talking about specific land promises, the sanctuary. And, and the specific king and the two sticks and what... Yeah. 
You just disregard all that in favor of a spiritualized explanation. And that's everywhere. I see that constantly. But he, he didn't I, bring them back from the whole earth. No. No, he hasn't exactly brought the church back to Israel from the whole earth. That hasn't happened. Did you have your hand up? Yeah, um, I did a question about you were trying to define, to be aware of the sequence, and that's what... So, this is the millennial kingdom, and then when we get 38, 39, that's that period after after the thousand years is up, and then Satan's loose and goes out and deceives the nations. That's what we're going to read in the next coming chapters. Is that... I would think so, right. okay. yeah. It, it would seem that this is the millennium kingdom, but also it has to extend over into the new Jerusalem. Because right. It's because my sanctuary is with you forever. forever. Yeah. The land promises forever. The covenant is forever. So yeah. that can't just be a thousand years. So that has to be like some initial manifestation of it, but not the full I agree. completion of it. Yeah, I agree. The new Jerusalem. But then again, it's called new Jerusalem. Right. It's not New Cleveland or New Houston or something. It's New Jerusalem, right. so that is a continuation of the promises God makes to Israel. I don't think we think of, ironically, with the name, the New, the new Jerusalem as Jewish as we should. Or as, right. Because that seems to be kind of the central theme. Of and do you remember the 12 gates? Well, Whose names are over yeah, the 12 gates? Tribes. 12 tribes. 12 tribes. Yeah, so, I mean, the whole New Jerusalem is the continuation of God's guarantees to Israel, he's going to be their God, they're going to be his people. Whether it's Revelation or whether from Abraham all the way to Revelation, it's all very Israelitish. Aren't the disciples supposed to sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes? Yeah, Jesus said in the restoration, you'll sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, which means the 12 tribes of Israel have to exist in order for them to be judges over them. So I think the desire to do what Jeff just read for us the desire to do that little bait and switch just doesn't pay attention to the whole context or even the immediate wording of Ezekiel 37. And yet, as I said when I began, Ezekiel 37, everybody knows. Why? Because the hip bone connect to the knee bone, the knee bone connect to the, I don't know, shin bone, shin bone connect to the shoulder bone. I'm all twisted up. I don't know. I <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yeah. So, as well known as that passage is, it's amazing how badly mishandled it gets. So, there, there's that. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.